Glory to his name. Yahweh Ira. On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Jerusalem. The city of the great king. The holy city. In Matthew 5.35, Jesus gives instructions about taking a vow. Uh, making a promise. He says this. Do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. Do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Is Jesus referring to King David? No. No. Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 48 when he declares the city of the great king to be Jerusalem. In Psalm 48, it says, How great is the Lord, how deserving of praise in the city of our God, which sits on his holy mountain. It is high and magnificent. The whole earth rejoices to see it. Mount Zion, the holy mountain, is the city of the great king. Why? God himself is in Jerusalem's towers revealing himself as Jerusalem's defender. Do you know why it's called the city of the great king? We ended session one this past week as King Solomon was dedicating the Jerusalem temple and something incredible, world-changing happened. He, he finishes building this building and he, he, uh, he puts the Ark of the Covenant behind the curtain in the most holy place and they step out and they pray and God changes his address. He moves. He moves from heaven to Jerusalem. He moves, his presence descends into a building on top of Mount Moriah. God's presence is on the earth. Think about that for a moment. In 1 Kings 8, 12, here's what we finished with last week. Then Solomon prayed, O Lord, you have said that you would live in a thick cloud of darkness. Now I have built a glorious temple for you, a place where you can live, how long? How long? Say it. Forever. In fact, it is our desire that you move to this address forever and that you live among your people forever. We'll never know what it's like to not be with you forever. Can you see the city of the great king yet? On the mountain of the Lord, a place called Moriah, it will be provided. Yahweh, Yira. God said to Abraham, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Yahweh, Yira. A substitute offering will be given by God. On Mount Moriah, there is a, an event that is a foreshadowing of an event. On Mount Moriah, God provided a substitute so that you and I could become an Isaac in this generation. That we could come off of the altar that was sure death, and someone would come to the altar, a lamb, and the sacrifice would be sufficient to pay the penalty of sin and to redeem us from the grave. Yahweh, Yira, 
on the mountain of the Lord, it was provided. The Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world would one day, listen church, would one day, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world would one day sit on a glorious throne in Jerusalem forever. Do you see it? Now, last week, we talked about King Solomon. That's where we, that's where we pick up session two today. King Solomon lived about 1,015 years before Christ, the best we can tell. King David and his son, King Solomon, these were the glory days of Israel. The kingdom was united as one, and they were the lone world superpower. Why? God had moved to Jerusalem. Don't miss that point. What made them the world's superpower? God. He moved and lived among his people. The presence of God had come down to dwell in the most holy place of the Jerusalem temple, behind the veil, behind the curtain, above the foundation stone on Mount Moriah. I hope you were here last week and you got all that. So I want you to think about it for a moment. What nation or people could possibly overcome Israel while God was dwelling in the Jerusalem temple over the ark? What nation, what people could make an invasion plan effective to Judah, to Jerusalem, while God was living in that temple? He is the nuclear option. Who could overcome them? Remember, from last week, the ark, the most holy place, the very presence of God on Jerusalem's temple in Mount Moriah. The place that Abraham was set to sacrifice Isaac. The place where David purchased a threshing floor from the Jebusite and built an altar to cause God to do the, what? To put his sword back into its sheath. According to the Jewish Talmud, not in the Bible, according to the Jewish Talmud, Mount Moriah is also the foundation stone. According to the Jewish Talmud, the same place that God gathered the dust that was made into Adam, and that Adam, Cain, Abel, and Noah offered sacrifices to God. All of that in one place on planet Earth, Mount Moriah the temple mount, the foundation stone. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. A nation, if you think about it, a nation that began with one man named Abraham. How God uses the idea of a mustard seed. Something so small can grow into something so big a nation of one man, Abraham, has become a nation gloriously powerful. By the time you get to King Solomon from Abraham, one man has become a world superpower known across the planet as something special, world-renowned. Leaders from around the world wanted to travel to Jerusalem to see what? The temple of God and witness what God had done for these children of Israel. Was it just to come, people from all over the world were traveling to Jerusalem, what? To see the brilliant architectural wonder of Solomon's temple? 
Was it the structures? Was it the organization of the kingdom? Or was it what was inside Solomon's temple? So I want to do something. I want to read 1 Kings 10. And I want you to, I read this so that you can see, <clears throat> this is not a localized phenomenon. The world knows what happens when God moves to Jerusalem. Verse 1, chapter 10. When the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, which brought honor to the name of the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. She arrived in Jerusalem with a large group of attendants and a great caravan of camels loaded with spices, large quantities of gold, and precious jewels. When she met with Solomon, she talked with him about everything she had on her mind. Solomon had answers for all of her questions. Maybe the first time in history that's ever happened, by the way. Ooh. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba realized how very wise Solomon was, and when she saw the palace he had built, she was overwhelmed. She was also amazed at the food on his tables, the organization of his officials, and their splendid clothing, the cupbearers, and the burnt offering Solomon made at the temple of the Lord. The centerpiece has just been announced, the temple of the Lord. She exclaimed to the king, everything I heard in my country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. I didn't believe what was said until I arrived here and I saw it with my own eyes. In fact, I had only heard the half of it. Your wisdom and prosperity are far beyond what I was told. How happy your people must be. What a privilege for your officials to stand here day after day listening to your wisdom. Praise the Lord your God. You know what the Queen of Sheba just did? She praised the God of Solomon. Huh? Praise the Lord your God who delights in you and has placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king so you can rule with justice and righteousness. Now, they had become famous, worldwide famous. Jerusalem, Solomon's temple was there. God was there on Mount Moriah. And here's the question. In the midst of this glorious fame and wonder, God has moved into Jerusalem's temple. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? We got it, right? Wrong. One thing. It may be blended into many things, but ultimately one thing could go wrong. You could forget about Yahweh era. In the midst of your fame and fortune, in the midst of your prosperity and beautiful buildings, you could forget about Yahweh era. On the mountain of the Lord, it is provided. One by one, the kings of Israel, starting with Solomon, one by one, the kings of Israel started to depart from the ways of King David, beginning with his son Solomon, forgetting the real reason that made Jerusalem famous. 
Let's go to 1 Kings 11.1. 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he, Solomon, married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people, people of Israel, you must not marry women from these places because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives. Now I'm going to tell you, I've been taught since I was a child that Solomon was one of the wisest people on earth. And then I read that verse. <laughs> he had 700 wives of royal birth, and if that's not enough, he had 300 concubines. I didn't say porcupines, I said <laughs> concubines. And I, I need to do something because this has relevance here today. Listen, this, today will be a heavy topic, I'll tell you that in advance. If you look up the word concubines, he had 300 of them. The word concubine is a woman with whom a man cohabits without being married. A social status below that of a wife. And I wonder what woman would allow a man to do that to her willingly. He had 300 of them. Something to think about, isn't it? He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God, as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, in this way, this idolatry brought on by disobedience, disobedience, God said, don't do it, and he did it anyway. Thought he was smarter than God. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Now, I want you to remember, this series is about Jerusalem, the holy city the city of the great king. And I want you to notice the very next verse in Solomon's falling away. Verse 7. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. Ooh, that sound familiar? On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he, Solomon, even built a pagan shrine to Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. Now, if you know anything about Jerusalem's holy city, understand that Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives actually looks down upon Mount Moriah. The Mount of Olives is higher than Mount Moriah. So if you stand on the Mount of Olives, you can actually look down into the city. You're at a higher level. So in essence, Solomon is building pagan shrines at a higher elevation than the city of Jerusalem. At a higher. He's lifting them higher than even 
God's presence on Mount Moriah behind the veil. The Bible calls in between there, between Mount Moriah and uh, um, the Mount of Olives, is a valley called the Kidron Valley. It is also known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. In the Bible, it's called the Valley of Decision. Multitudes and multitudes in the Valley of Decision. What's the decision? Which God will you follow? The gods of man that you build yourself or the God of Jerusalem on Mount Moriah? Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. The son of David, the builder of the glorious Jerusalem temple on Mount Moriah, was now building pagan altars and shrines on the Mount of Olives. And God knows the future of the Mount of Olives. And here's the question, and here's where we're going. How will God respond? What's he going to do? God has moved into the Jerusalem temple to live among his, the holiest of holy places. And he has moved and his holiness is supposed to spread throughout the people so that the people might become holy because he is holy and he lives among them. And now they have taken another road of unholiness and what will God do? Even his king, Solomon, detestable things. What will God do? 1 Kings 11, 9. The Lord was very angry with Solomon. For his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods. But Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. He refused to listen to the warnings. So, now the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. For this, but for the sake of your father David, I will not do this while you are still alive. I will take the kingdom away from your son. And even so, I will not take away the, king, the entire kingdom. I will let him be king of one tribe for the sake of my servant David. And for what? Listen. And for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city, my address. I will not take it away from you while you're alive. I asked a question a few minutes ago, in the height of their fame and fortune, what could go wrong? Listen, idolatry. Solomon's heart was drawn away from God to worship substitutes, cheap imitations of the original. God's anger announced the first step of Israel's fall. The kingdom of Israel was going to be divided into two kingdoms. This is where the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah find their origins. Samaria became the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had a few good kings, not many, that kingdom, the northern kingdom, which included 10 tribes, the 10 sons of Israel, 10 sons of Jacob, lasted about, you ready? About 400 years. 
And then they were completely destroyed by the Assyrians. And by the way, you know what the capital of the Assyrians were when they came and destroyed Israel? Nineveh. They're the bad Nineveh. We, we good Nineveh. Okay, let's get that cleared up. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted a little bit longer because it had several good kings that reigned in Jerusalem. That kingdom, which in that time was two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, lasted about 500 years until finally God decided enough. Enough. And he brings King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon to destroy Jerusalem and scatter the ones that survive. It happened in 586 B.C. Jerusalem. Can you see the history? Can you see the glory? The city of the great king? So, here we go again. Here's the question. How was it possible for a foreign king to come march into Jerusalem with God living there, how would it be possible for him to come, Nebuchadnezzar, any army, not just his army, to enter into Jerusalem when God is living, living behind the veil in the Jerusalem temple? How's it possible? It wasn't. God was going to leave. Y'all listening? God was going to leave Jerusalem's temple, the city of the great king. He's leaving. Let this sink in for a moment. God had made a decision that he was going to live among his people in Jerusalem, a place that he chose. They didn't choose it. He chose it. It's the same place that Abraham was told to go to this specific place and offer a sacrifice. According to the Talmud, it's the foundation stone where he formed Adam, breathed dust into him. And, and he's, he's, it's his throne. It's the place where he wants to live forever. And yet, he's going to leave. Let that sink in for a moment. He's going to leave God had entered the Jerusalem temple when Solomon dedicated it. And now the prophet Ezekiel reveals the time when God is going to leave that same temple. And there's a word in the Old Testament. I've always found an amazing word, Ichabod. Do you know what it is? The glory of God has departed. It's shown in the time of Eli when they lost the Ark of the Covenant. But the glory of God has departed. Why would God leave the temple? What happened that would make, what would be so big that would make God move? So let me introduce a theological question that's been debated for generations, even in the church age. Here it is. Would God depart from a temple that he had once inhabited? Would God leave a temple that he had once entered into? Theological question. Some of you will get that question. Some of you won't. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to pay close attention to this next part and what follows it. It is one of the most dreadful scenes in all of Scripture, and it is surrounding the question, what would make God leave? 
What would make him move? And does it have any influence on us today? So let me give you some context before I read it to you. King Nebuchadnezzar had already come and made his first raid in Jerusalem. Understand that Nebuchadnezzar actually had two events inside the city of Jerusalem. The first time he comes, he doesn't burn it to the ground. He carries off the nobles. And that's when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are carried away to Babylon as slaves. But the temple, in that time, the temple of the city was not destroyed. Not yet. In fact, it looks like the presence of God remains in the temple after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel are taken away. He hasn't left. Not yet. Not yet. In Ezekiel chapter 8, here we go. Listen carefully. And then on September 17th, during the sixth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, while the leaders of Judah were in my home, the sovereign Lord took hold of me. This is Ezekiel talking. I saw a figure that appeared to be a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he looked like a burning flame. From the waist up, he looked like a gleaming amber. He reached out what seemed to be a hand, and he took me by the hair. Then the Spirit lifted me up into the sky and transported me to Jerusalem in a vision from God. I was taken to the north gate of the inner city of the temple. So where they? They're going to Mount Moriah, right? Jerusalem where there is a large idol that has made the Lord very jealous. Suddenly, the glory of the God of Israel was there, just as I had seen it before in the valley. And then the Lord said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and there to the north, beside the entrance to the gate near the altar, stood the idol that had made the Lord so jealous." Son of man, and by the way, that's the title that God gave Ezekiel. Son of man, he said, do you see what they're doing? Do you see the detestable sins the people of Israel are committing to what? Here it comes, here it comes. Do you see the detestable sins that the children of Israel are doing to drive me from my temple? What would they do that would make God move? But come. And you will see even more detestable sins than these. Then he brought me to the door of the temple courtyard where I could see a hole in the wall. He said to me, now, son of man, dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and found a hidden doorway. Go in, he said, and see the wicked and detestable sins they are committing in there. So I went in and saw the walls engraved with all kinds of crawling animals and destitute. Uh, detestable creatures. I also saw the various idols worshipped by the people of Israel. Seventy leaders, remember this part, seventy leaders of Israel were standing there, and they're kind of in a dark hidden place, okay? Seventy leaders of Israel are standing there um, with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, in the center. Each of them held an incense burner from which a cloud of incense rose above their heads. And then the Lord said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the leaders of Israel are doing with their idols in dark rooms? Now, now they think that God doesn't see in there. 
They are saying the Lord doesn't see. He has deserted our land. And then the Lord added, come, and I will show you even more detestable sins than these. He brought me to the north gate of the Lord's temple, and some women were sitting there weeping for the god of Tammuz. Now, now the god Tammuz is the sun god. They're weeping. Women are weeping, worshiping the sun god. Have you seen this? He asked. But I will show you even more detestable sins than these. And then he brought me to, into the inner courtyard of the temp, Lord's temple. At the entrance to the sanctuary, between the entry room and the bronze altar, there were about 25 men with their backs to the sanctuary of the Lord. Their backs are to where they should be facing, by the way. They were facing east, bowing low to the ground, worshiping what? The sun. I guess... Tammuz. Have you seen this, son of man? He asked. Is it nothing to the people of Judah that they commit these detestable sins, leading the whole nation into violence, thumbing their nose at me and provoking my anger? Therefore, I will respond in fury. I will neither pity nor spare them, and though they cry for mercy, I will not listen. The glorious Jerusalem had forgotten the one that made it glorious. This next section is the one that forever moves my soul. Brings fear, I'm going to confess, brings fear of God into my heart. It's the next chapter in Ezekiel's story. It is the reason that God is leaving Jerusalem. It's the reason that God is departing from the temple. The city of the great king the place that God had made his address, he's leaving. Ezekiel 9 verse 1. And then the Lord thundered. Bring on the men appointed to punish the city. Now, I need pause for a moment. I hope you were here last week. Last week, David is on Mount Moriah, and he's, he's done a census, and God has issued a plague. And David looks up and he sees between heaven and earth the angel of death, the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. Okay, I want you to picture that scene. And what David did on Mount Moriah caused the, the angel of death to put the sword up and stop killing. So here we are way in the future, time of Ezekiel. And the Lord thundered, bring the men appointed to punish the city. Now, I want you to visualize there's going to be six death angels. And they have their swords drawn in Ezekiel's scene. Bring on the men appointed to punish the city. Tell them to bring their weapons with them. Six men soon appeared from the upper gate that faces north, each carrying a deadly weapon in his hand. So I want you to connect. This happened earlier on Mount Moriah with David and the threshing floor. Now it's happening again in the time of Ezekiel. Now there's six of them. With the six was a man dressed in linen who carried a writer's case at his side. Everybody listen. With the six destroying angels is a man dressed in linen carrying a writer's case. Who is he? They all, 
they all went into the temple courtyard and stood beside the bronze altar. And then the glory of the God of Israel rose up from between the cherubim. Now, where would the cherubim be? They're behind the veil in the most holy place. And the glory of God rises up from between the cherubim where it had rested and moved and moved to the entrance of the temple. What's, what's taking place here? He's preparing to leave. Stay with me. And the Lord called to the man dressed in linen who was carrying the writer's case. And he said to him, walk through the streets of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of all who what? The man dressed in linen carrying the writer's case. I want you to walk through Jerusalem and I want you to put a mark on the forehead of everyone who weeps and sighs because of the detestable sins that are being committed in Jerusalem. Mark them. Mark those who refuse to go along with everybody else who is knee-deep in detestable sins. But they didn't go alone. They separated themselves. They understood what the call to holiness was, and they didn't go along. Mark them. They're mine. Mark them. Put a mark on their forehead. Now, now Paul's in the Ezekiel story. I want to give you a scene. If you fast forward to a future time to us in Revelation 7, the tribulation is upon the earth. A horrible time. Hell upon the earth. And in that scene, God calls 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And he raises them up. During the tribulation. And what does he do to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that he raises up to proclaim the gospel to the Jewish people during the seven-year tribulation? What does he do? He puts a mark on their forehead. He puts a mark on their forehead. What, what, what does it mean? These are mine. So let me tell you, you want this mark. There may be a lot of marks you don't, you want this mark. So back to Ezekiel. There's a man dressed in linen. He's carrying a, a writer's case. He's writing down names. <laughs> and I want you to mark the ones that belong to me. And who are they? They weep and they mourn. They don't go along with sin. They, sin grieves them. Mark them. I want that to sink in for a moment. Verse 5. Then I heard the Lord say to the other men, these are the death angels with the six death angels with the sword strung. Follow him. Who? The man in the linen who's got a writer's case. Follow him through the city and kill everyone whose forehead is not marked. Show no mercy. Have no pity. Kill them all. Old, young, girls, women, are you ready? Little children, kill them all. But do not touch anyone with the mark. Don't touch anyone who belongs to me. 
began, listen, where? Right here in the temple. So they began killing whom first? The 70 leaders hiding in the darkness that should have known holy. But they didn't. So he began by killing the 70 leaders. Defile the temple, the Lord commanded. Fill its courtyard with corpses. Go. So they went. Who's going? These six destroying angels. So they went and began killing throughout the city. While they were out killing, I, Ezekiel, was alone. I was all alone. I fell, I fell face down on the ground and cried out. What a, what a good advice. All I know to do, he fell face down on the ground and he cried out, O sovereign Lord, will your fury against Jerusalem wipe out everyone left in Israel? Then he said to me, the sins of the people of Israel and Judah are very, very great. The entire land. What's the description? It's full of murder. The city is filled with injustice. They are saying, the Lord doesn't see it. The Lord has abandoned the land. So I will not spare them or have any pity on them. I will fully repay them for all they have done. And then the man in linen clothing who carried the writer's case reported back and said what? What? It is done. Everything, what's done? Kill all the ones who aren't marked. First off, he marked them. And second, the destroying angels followed the execution of the unmarked. This is one one more final scene from Ezekiel about Jerusalem before we move on. This is the next chapter in Ezekiel, chapter 10. In my vision, I saw what happened. Excuse me. In my vision, I saw what appeared to be a throne of blue lapis lazuli above the crystal surface over the heads of the cherubim. And then the Lord spoke to the man in linen clothing and said, Go between the whirling wheels beneath the cherubim and take a handful of burning coals and scatter them over the city. Do you think that's a good thing? No. Send down fire on Jerusalem. He did this as I watched. The cherubim were standing at the south end of the temple when the man went in and the cloud of glory filled the inner courtyard. Then the glory of the Lord rose up from above the cherubim and went over to the door of the temple. Do you see what's happening? Y'all seeing it? He's leaving. He's getting ready to leave. The temple was filled with this cloud of glory and the courtyard glowed brightly with the glory of the Lord. The moving wings of the cherubim sounded like the voice of God Almighty and could be heard even in the outer courtyard. Now jump down to verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord moved out from the door of the temple and hovered above the cherubim who were moving with him. And as I watched, the cherubim flew with their wheels to the east gate of the Lord's temple and the glory of the God of Israel hovered above them. 
I wonder if this is one of the saddest scenes in Scripture. He's leaving. What, what do you think is going to happen when he leaves? The glory of God had departed from Jerusalem, from the temple's eastern gate. Listen, that's important too in the future. He's gone. Do you understand how the Babylonian king can come and destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, burn it to the, down, to the ground? Do you understand how Nebuchadnezzar could do it? He's gone. Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. The people of Jerusalem had a false sense of security. Here's where I'm going to tie the modern world, especially the church in America, a false sense sense of security. The people of Jerusalem had a false sense of security. You know what it was? The temple. The temple. Nebuchadnezzar, these armies could never come and destroy us. Why? We have the temple. We have the temple. The building was there. But the building was empty. The temple was there. The temple is empty. He left. The glory had departed. They didn't realize it. They didn't know it. And that's the darkest darkness of all, is when you think the light you have is light, but it's actually darkness. How deep is that darkness? God told Jeremiah to give them a warning. Here's what it looks like, Jeremiah 7, 4. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety. Simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here. The Lord's temple is here. We're good. We're safe. Don't worry. We got it. The glorious presence of God had departed from Jerusalem. It's gone. Jerusalem, the temple, it's all gone. The Babylonian king had burned it all down. Everything. You understand? When he came in, when Nebuchadnezzar came in, God had departed. Ichabod, the glory of God had departed. And God uh, allows Nebuchadnezzar to come into the city and set it all on fire, carrying off its treasure. It's gone. The glory that brought the queen of Sheba to see, it's all gone. What? Idolatry, detestable sins. Jeremiah was there. Jeremiah writes what we call lamentations. It's a lamenting. What? He writes, he stands there, and he saw the glorious Jerusalem destroyed. He writes this. Listen carefully. And, and before I read it, I, here's, here it is. You tell me if there's a parallel between God raising Israel to world prominence in the Old Testament and God raising America to world prominence in modern time and what happens to both of them. You tell me, do you see the connection? I'll read it. You decide. Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She was once great among the nations. Now she sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave. She sobs through the night. Tears stream down her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there's no one left to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. 
Judah has been led away into captivity, oppressed with cruel slavery. She lives among foreign nations and has no place of rest. Her enemies have chased her down and she has nowhere to turn. The roads to Jerusalem are in mourning, for crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city gates are silent. Her priests groan. Her young women are crying. How bitter is her fate. Her oppressors have become her masters, and her enemies prosper, for the Lord has punished Jerusalem for her many sins. Her children have been captured and taken away to distant lands. All the majesty of beautiful Jerusalem has been stripped away. Her princes are like starving deer searching for pasture. They are too weak to run from the pursuing enemy. In the midst of her sadness and wandering, Jerusalem remembers her ancient splendor. But now she has fallen to her enemy, and there is no one to help her. Her enemy struck her down and laughed as she fell. Jerusalem has sinned greatly, so she has been tossed away like a filthy rag. All who once honored her now despise her, for they have seen her stripped naked and humiliated. All she can do is groan and hide her face. Now here comes the part. A sentence I haven't been able to get out of my mind all week. She defiled herself with immorality and gave no thought to her future. You tell me that's not America. She defiled herself with immorality and gave no thought to her future. And here we are today in what many believe we might be on the brink of a World War III, maybe even a nuclear event. And I keep hearing this sentence, and she defiled herself with immorality. A nation of people that God raised to the highest level and they defiled themselves with immorality and gave no thought to their own future. Now she lies in the gutter. No one to lift her out. Lord, see my misery, she cries. The enemy has triumphed. The enemy has plundered her completely, taking every precious thing she owns. She has seen foreigners violate her sacred temple, the place the Lord had forbidden them to enter. Her people groan as they search for bread. They have sold their treasures for food to stay alive. Oh, Lord, look, she mourns, and see how I am despised. So let me ask you a question. How's that for an encouraging sermon today? <laughs> this probably be the last time anybody comes. You won't hear the verse, uh, session three, four, and five. I can tell you today this is session two, and it's not the end. It is a very sad reality, and it is truth. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. But it's not over yet. That mountain of the Lord in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, and a substitute lamb has been given to mankind to cause God to put his divine sword back in his sheath. As of today, as of this moment, you can still be in Isaac. I don't know how much longer, but as of today, you can be an Isaac. There is one that is offered to take your place on the altar of God's judgment, a lamb. 
Yes, this is an encouraging sermon. You know why? It's called truth. And truth sets people free. Church, I have a question. Do you think he's watching today? Church, do you think he sees what you do in the dark? Do you think he sees? Do you think he knows? Do you think you will survive the coming judgment because the temple, the temple, the church, the church, do you see the parallel? You see, Judah, Israel thought they could survive the coming judgment. They could survive anything. What? Because of the temple, the temple. And in the modern American world, many people think they can survive anything because of the church, the church. There's a problem. The temple, the temple was nothing without the presence of God. It's nothing. It's just a building. And the church, the church without the presence of God is nothing. It's nothing. It's meaningless. It's a false sense of security. Next week will be part three. We're going to deal with God's mercy that brought the remnant of Israel back to Jerusalem at the end of 70 years. He goes and gets them and brings them back to Jerusalem. But before we close, I want to move. I need to focus on us today with a sobering message from God. Here it is. It's in 1 Peter 4.17. Listen carefully, church. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin where? In God's household. Here. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? God's judgment, if you go back to Ezekiel's story, God's judgment did not begin in Babylon. It began in the temple with the 70 leaders. It began with his people. That's where he started. The next time, okay, what about our time? It will begin in the church. Is anybody listening? It will begin in the church. And let me give you an example of what that might look like. When God comes for his bride, those who have been marked, they belong to him. They are his. That will be the first part of the judgment. He will separate those who are marked from those who are unmarked. What did the man dressed in linen do when he went through the city? He separated those who belong to God and those who do not belong to God. Those who mourn and grieve sin and those who are willing participants in sin. He separates them. He marks them. When the rapture of the church takes place, the bride of Christ who is marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit will rise. It will begin in the church. Why do I say that? Because many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, I did this, I did that, you know, but it was a church that had no spirit. It was an empty temple. He's not there. You're not marked. You don't belong to him. The Holy Spirit, listen, here's why I'm saying all this. The Holy Spirit is your mark. Do you understand? It's not something that's going to be seen on your forehead. I guess he can see it. The Holy Spirit is your mark, your seal, the promise that God is inside of you. You belong to him. You are possessed by, belong to the Holy Spirit. You belong to God. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. What will be provided? A way for you to be marked as his. You can become an Isaac. You can 
get off of the altar that has the drawn sword and you can allow a lamb to take your place. And when you do, you receive the mark, the presence of the Holy Spirit. The mark is God's ownership. And here's what's interesting. Listen carefully. The Holy Spirit always grieves sin. You know what's coming into the church? Sin. And everybody's, not everybody, many churches are going along with it. You don't grieve it anymore, which is what? It is the evidence of the absence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is holy. It's not going to dwell or, or, or walk side by side with sin. It will convict you of the sin. In 2 Corinthians 1.21, it is God who enables us along with you to stand firm in Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us. What's our mark? He has identified us as his own by placing his Holy Spirit in our hearts. You think he can't tell who's his? By putting his Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he's promised. If you fast forward to the last chapter of Revelation, the last chapter, you know what it says? And God's name will be written on their foreheads of the redeemed. What, what does all that mean? He's marking. What, what does it mean? You're his. You belong to him. You're possessed by the creator of the universe. If you're not possessed by him, you're possessed by someone else owns you. Ephesians 1.14, the Spirit is God's guarantee. The mark. The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised and that He has purchased us to be His own people. He did this so that we would give praise and glory to Him. I'm going to say it again. The Holy Spirit always grieves sin. Always. Always grieve sin. That doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect when we have the Holy Spirit. What it does mean is that we cannot grieve the Holy Spirit when it comes to sin. Because the Holy Spirit is in the opposite of sin. In against sin itself. So let me ask you a question. I told you this would be a heavy topic today. If the man dressed in linen carrying a writer's case at his side came into the church today. Would you survive? Would you get the mark? Because here comes the next part. Do you grieve sin? Do you think it's okay? It's in the church. Do you grieve sin? The Antichrist also has a mark. It's interesting to me that there's the holy and the unholy. The Antichrist mark will mark during the tribulation the hand and the forehead. God says he'll mark the forehead. I don't know that it's something you can see or not see. I don't know. I don't care. You want, you want to never have to worry about the mark of the beast? Be marked by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you can say you'll never have to have, you don't even have to talk about it. 
in Ezekiel 9, 3. I'm going to read it again. Then the glory of the God of Israel rose up from between the cherubim where it had rested and moved to the entrance of the temple. And the Lord called to the man dressed in linen who was carrying the writer's case. And he said to him, walk through the streets of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of all who weep and sigh because of the detestable sins being committed in the city. And then I heard the Lord say to the other men, follow him through the city and kill everyone whose forehead is not marked. Show no mercy, have no pity, kill them all, old and young, girls, women, little children. Do not touch anyone with the mark and begin right here in the temple. So they began by killing the 70 leaders. Defile the temple, the Lord commanded, fill its courtyard with corpses, go. So they went and began killing throughout the city. One more time, do you grieve, weep, and sigh the detestable sins of the church? I read yesterday, yesterday, that the United Methodist Church is splitting again, creating a new denomination. And if you read down inside to figure out why is the United Methodist Church splitting, because there's a group inside the United Methodist Church that doesn't want to go along with this LBGTQ, transgender, all this nonsense. They say, we can't be a part of that. And they grieve the detestable sin that is moving inside of so many churches. And they grieve and they say, we're separating ourselves from you. We must separate ourselves from you. The Holy Spirit always grieves sin. So just in case you're thinking, well, I don't, that's not my struggle. I don't, I don't deal with that. But li listen, you know what the sin was? Idolatry. You know what idolatry is in the New Testament? Materialism. Is anybody listening? You know what idolatry in the New Testament is? It's materialism. An insatiable desire for more and more stuff. Stuff. That's idolatry. And he marked those who grieved sin and those who were in idolatry, and those who were in sexual sin, and maybe you're in the room today and say, well, but that's the homosexual movement. No, 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 no. It, it's sexual sin overall. It, it's, it's idolatry. It's lying. It's stealing. It's, it's, we grieve sin because the Holy Spirit is holy. We're holy. We're called to be holy. And when we do sin, when we have the mark of the Holy Spirit, we, we repent of that sin. We don't live in that sin. We repent. We're grieved by, I hate this flesh. I hate it. Maybe you're in the room today and, and you're living together outside of marriage. Come on, preacher, why do you bring this stuff up? Because the Holy Spirit grieves sin. Do you understand? Maybe you're living together. Maybe, maybe men, you're, you're in that computer in, in, in pornography in that dark room. And you think God doesn't see? It's in the church. The Holy Spirit always grieves sin. The temple. The temple. I got to tell you today, the temple without the presence of God is an empty building waiting for the fire. Anybody listening? The church, the church, the church without the presence of the Holy Spirit is just another tent, another temple waiting for the fire, waiting for the judgment. Judgment. 
Now, here's the last point. Ezekiel gives the last eight chapters in his book to a millennial temple. Incredible detail of what the temple in Jerusalem is going to look like when Jesus comes to reign for a thousand years. Go read it. Mind-blowing temple. But there's also a temple that happens on the earth before that. We call it the third temple. The third temple is where the Antichrist is going to be uh, uh, at the three and a half year mark and where he proclaimed to the world he's God. So he's in a temple. But I want you to understand from God's perspective, you are the third temple. The Bible says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right now, he's not in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. He's in here. He is the mark. And you think he can't recognize himself? He is the mark. And right now, the third temple is me. The third temple is you. And if you defile this temple, do you understand? He marks us with his Holy Spirit. He marks us with his very presence. Then yes, you will fall. Yes, you will sin. And when you do, the Holy Spirit will grieve you. He will convict you. You will repent of that sin. You will not participate in that sin. You will not endorse that sin. You won't pretend like it's not sin. You'll beg God's forgiveness. And guess what? Yahweh, Yira. You can become an Isaac. And you can come off of that altar. And the Lamb of God will take your place when you repent of that sin. Tell me this is an encouraging message. I'll ask Chad to come out for the invitation. You know what? People ask me all week long, what do you think about this Russia and Ukraine? You know, I don't know. I don't know. Is he a madman willing to pull the nuclear trigger? I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps. But I know this. If you've got the mark, you cannot die. Do you understand? You might die a physical death, and then you're going to have a resurrection into eternal life. It is the cure. It is the only cure. It is the only way you and I are going to have salvation. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me will live. Even if you die, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Never. And then he says, four words, do you believe this? It's called faith. So today, we're going to sing a song. It's called The Altar, or something like that. And the idea is if today is the day that the Holy Spirit comes and ask to come inside of you. Ask you to repent of those sins that you've been doing in the dark, that you don't, you act like God doesn't know. And you can unload that stuff today. And all I know is this, that he promises that he'll mark us. He'll possess me. He'll say, that one's mine. That one's mine. They belong to me. Satan, you have no authority in their life. They belong to me. Father, I pray today that this temple, this temporary third temple, that you will reign in us right now while we wait for you to reign in the one in Jerusalem. You will reign in us now, today. Today, reign in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. I 